Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the not-for-credit podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode in the middle of August 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined by my co-host and just-announced star of season two of Stranger Things. Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. So Frank, we're working hard this summer with episodes of The Twill. I do hope someone will uh, go to iTunes or somewhere and review the show or say something nice about us. Make us feel welcome. Make us feel needed, not just <laughs> not not just needy. <laughs> and no reruns. I think that deserves five and stars. No, no summer reruns. reruns. So this is, of course, part two of the Back to School special with our Twill All-Stars. I took a look back at the topics we put on the radar with our friends this time last year. This isn't the full list, but House versus Burwell, as it was then styled, was, was on the list and discuss the three R's, continuing growth in fraud and abuse doctrine, macro MIPS, Medicaid expansion and waivers, and ERISA. Well, guess what? They're all back this year. I suppose the good news is that this year's guests uh, bear out the importance of those issues that uh, uh, we're still discussing them. The bad news is sort of the sad fact that maybe the chaos in DC has really slowed resolution of some incredibly important issues that should be on the front burner now rather than uh, uh, retreading older stuff. That's the truth, I tell you. I was actually uh, just reading a 1979 review of a book by Carl Sagan, and it's amazing how much of the political atmosphere then is still relevant now. Uh, the past is prologue and not even past, as Faulkner would say. So let's have our guests introduce themselves after, of course, we hear the welcoming ring of the old school bell. This is Erin Fusay-Brown. I'm an associate professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. It's great to be here on the Back to School special for 2017. This is Zach Buck, assistant professor of law at the University of Tennessee. One thing that I'm going to be watching for this fall and following quite closely is the continued implementation of the MACRA and MIPS program under Medicare reimbursement. So first, a little bit about MACRA, what it did, and a little bit about MIPS, and then what we could see coming down the pike in the next couple of months. So most generally, uh, MACRA, which stands for the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act of 2015, replaced the sustainable growth rate, or the SGR, which is how Medicare paid physicians who participated within the program. And what MACRA did is it moved from SGR's global and attenuated mechanism. So that is a, a mechanism that didn't work quite well to, uh, to, to force efficiencies, and moves to a mandatory individually based mechanism where providers are gauged on four different metrics. It also mandates budget neutrality. So for every positive adjustment, there must be a corresponding negative adjustment in reimbursement. And as I mentioned, these four metrics uh, are important in determining how Medicare pays its physicians. And so this is under the MIPS program, the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System. The four metrics are cost, improvement activities, quality, and advancing care information, which also has been known as meaningful use. And basically what CMS is going to be doing is measuring the performance on these four metrics for all the providers or most providers within Medicare. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then using 
using that data to determine reimbursement rates. In fact, MIPS has already started in uh, 2017, this current year. We're actually in the first performance year that started on January 1st. And so actually currently, right now, providers are, are submitting data to CMS, which will affect their reimbursements starting in 2019. So who actually is required to be enrolled in the MIPS program? Well, there are a couple of major exceptions. First, any provider that is enrolled in an alternative payment model, so that is a Medicare shared savings program or an accountable care organization or a patient, patient-centered medical home, is not required to enroll in MIPS. Secondly, there's a, a low-volume exception. So any provider who sees less than 100 Medicare patients per year uh, or bills Medicare less than $30,000 per year is not required to enroll in the MIPS program. As I mentioned, we're currently in performance year one, and that will affect payment year uh, 2019. At stake right now is as much as 4% of the overall Medicare reimbursement for any provider who is enrolled in the MIPS program. And this percentage actually increases up until year 2022, where it uh, it reaches 9% of the overall Medicare reimbursement. One thing that I'm going to be watching as we go into the fall semester, though, is potential changes to the program. So in mid-June this uh, past summer, CMS released a 2018 proposed rule for the macro quality payment program. And what it does is it, I think there are a couple major themes that we can focus on. Uh, again, this is a proposed rule. Comments are due on August 21st, and then CMS will decide uh, where the program goes from here. But generally, CMS seems to be simplifying the program, reducing any burdens that exist uh, with the program, and making it particularly less onerous for small and rural practices. And this was on the heels of a number of surveys where providers seem to suggest that they did not feel confident confident about what was required under the MIPS program and how it might actually impact their reimbursements going forward. So a a couple of minutes about uh, spent on the changes brought about uh, by this 2018 proposed rule, and then um, we'll we'll see exactly where they they kind of end up. So most generally, I think that there are two types of changes that the proposed rule thinks about uh, uh, bringing to the MIPS program. First is limiting the program's reach, that is creating larger exceptions for providers to get out from under the MIPS requirements. And secondly, softening the changes brought about by the program, so making it easier for providers to actually meet some of these benchmarks. So first, some of the changes brought about by the proposed rule that focus on limiting the program. The first thing that I think is most notable about the rule is that it widens the low volume exception from the $30,000 per year and 100 beneficiaries to $90,000 per year for Medicare and 200 beneficiaries. So this in effect would mean that any provider who bills less than $90,000 to Medicare each year and sees less than 200 beneficiaries is actually exempt from MIPS, even those who are not in an APM. The effect of this new exception would drop participation to about 36% of providers um, who see Medicare patients. Um, However, as has been reported, this 36% makes up about 58% of Medicare's costs to Part B. So in some ways, it seems as though CMS would be retaining the um, participation for providers who cost uh, Medicare the most. Uh, This new exception would exclude more than 134,000 additional providers from the program. And the final estimates as to how many then would be enrolled might total about 550 to 600,000 providers going forward. The other thing it does in terms of limiting participation within the MIPS program, the proposed rule, is that it expands the 
definition of what it means to be an alternative payment model uh, and, and also makes it easier to qualify for APMs. So as I mentioned, any provider who is part of an APM does not have to enroll in MIPS and that is does not have to submit data and have their reimbursement affected under the MIPS program. The second big category of what the proposed rule does is that it softens the blow for implementing the MIPS program for providers. So a couple big points here. It first delays the cost met metric. So one of the four metrics for reimbursement, of course, is cost efficiency. It was originally slated to actually begin in performance year 2018. So it's actually not being collected. Uh, data on it is not being collected right now. But this new proposed rule actually proposes to delay that another year so that cost would not be collected until performance year 2019. The other thing that it does is that it creates virtual groups. So this is, again, in an effort to try to make the program easier for individual and rural providers, is it allows providers to, to band together, particularly disparate and independent physicians, to aggregate and streamline the data reporting that they have to complete to be a part of the MIPS program. And finally, a small footnote, it proposes adding additional bonus points to the score of small practices to help them with some of these changes and also loosen some of the requirements around the adoption of certified electronic health record technology that's required under the MIPS program. So I'll be watching to see what the 2018 proposed rule uh, brings about if it actually is fully implemented and how it changes the implementation of the MIPS program, generally because I'm interested in how it impacts Medicare's overall budget, but also gives us an indication as to what the Trump administration and particularly the CMS thinks about quality payment within Medicare. Zach, I did have a question for you. Sure. I thought that when you're talking about MACRA yeah. and the budget neutrality requirement, it yes. sounds like everything in the proposed rule makes it easier, which makes means that you're cutting physicians' payments less, especially yes. the ex ex widening of the exemptions. How are they going to make it up? I think what's going to happen is less providers are going to qualify for adjustments upward because there's still a lot of vagueness about what actually would count or you know how they're actually going to determine who gets the 1%, the 2%, the 3% uh, increase. So I, I think what ultimately what's happening is you're actually, you know, it's it's like resetting the, the curve in a class, right? If you're if you're raising the bottom or if you're allowing the bottom to, to achieve something or, or to kind of uh, achieve something on a glide path, then you're actually impacting the top as well. That's my guess. That's very interesting. And I'm wondering if the sort of gunners uh, among physicians are <laughs> attuned to that issue and realize that they're getting a haircut um, so that the uh, less, you know, the folks who don't score as well on their four metrics can get paid more. I don't know. The other thing that I thought was really interesting why they mentioned those numbers is, you know, this 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 grouping, even even with the APM and the increased low volume exception, you, you still get a, you still capture about a third of the physicians who are billing Medicare, but they're responsible for almost 60% of, of total Part B uh, reimbursement. And so I'm wondering if CMS actually thought, you know, let's let the small fish go because they're not the ones that are causing the weight, the, you know, the, the, the inefficiencies in the system. And so maybe that was part of the, the proposed rule making as well. I, I don't know. But I found that interesting that there's that such that disparity between the percentage of people uh, who are now going to be forced into MIPS and, and how, what percentage they make up in terms of budget. Long term, how important is MIPS APM going to be? Because 
as more and more physicians work for institutions, are we really going to be pinning our sort of future cost savings on Medicare physicians? <laughs> I don't know. I, I got a, a similar question at SEALs uh, a couple of weeks ago or a week ago. And I think the answer is it's incremental and it's better than SGR. And we don't know where the other parts of the balloon uh, yet that are going to expand as a result of this squeeze. And so there probably remains the distinct possibility that there will be gaming of this system as well. And I think also, you know, the fact that uh, the administration seems like it's in support of of, of the quality payment uh, move, but also is keenly aware of, of the hardships that some providers face. So I don't know exactly how, uh, how much bite it will have uh, given what you mentioned uh, with employment trends uh, and these widening exceptions, it's hard to know. But what I what I wanted to focus on was something that at least we think we know will continue to exist going into the future, which is can't be said about a lot of health policy in, in this day and age. How does this work with Medicare managed care? M- managed care is uh, is pretty interesting. So when I mentioned that the definition of APMs is has shifted under this proposed rule. Uh, Under the current 2017 performance year, there was some confusion as to what uh, Medicare Advantage or or managed care um, actually how it would fit uh, within within the MIPS program. Are they are individuals actually completely exempt? Are they not? Um, This uh, this new proposed rule actually creates a a new category entitled other payer advanced APMs, which includes uh, Medicaid managed care as well as Medicare Advantage. Uh, and so what seems to be the case, although there's there's not a ton of clarity yet on this because it's still so new, is that it seems like CMS is suggesting that providers that are within the Medicare Advantage program uh, are participating within within Medicare Advantage are not, uh, are not subject to the MIPS requirements. Uh, and that this new proposed rule makes that clearer than what we're currently operating under. So that's my take at this point. One of the things that I, of course, you know, all of us have been watching over the summer, what's happening at the federal level with the Affordable Care Act. Um, and I really hate to pro- prognosticate about the vitality and future of the ACA. But at the moment, at least, you know, here it is, what is it, in, in mid-August, it seems as though that the ACA for the time being will re- remain intact. Um, although, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty whether it will be weakened, particularly individual markets will be weakened by the Trump administration or shored up by some bipartisan effort in Congress, and that all of that remains to be seen. And so, of course, we'll, we'll be still watching the news for what's happening at the federal level. But for the purposes of teaching health law, one of the big takeaways um, from the past few months is that the locus of activity, like where actual health policy is being made, has shifted, and it's shifted to the states. Um, because much of the innovation that we're seeing um, in health policy and the proactive policymaking is really happening at the state level. And of course, this is in part due to the federal gridlock, um, which is either a sort of partisan gridlock or even gridlock am- amongst the Republicans who control Congress and the White House, and, and then all the resulting uncertainty that emanates from the federal government. So in the wake of all that uncertainty, you know, we have states trying to figure out how they can shore up their own um, health care, you know, markets and their 
own borders and protect their own citizens. It's also due to the policy preferences that are sort of taking hold um, amidst the sort of majority Republicans of, of Republicans in Congress and many conservatives, which is to emphasize state responsibility and control um, and state flexibility over their own local markets for healthcare. So it's not feasible from a teaching standpoint to teach you know all of the state innovations that are happening all over the the country, but it does make for a really great teaching exercise to have students evaluate examples of state initiatives that may be local to their state or something that's sort of really just interesting and, and grabbing the headlines at the moment. And so one of the things that I think about doing is, you know, when I'm teaching a particular topic, I can then assign students to research and report out or write a policy brief um, to make, ex- you know, explanations and recommendations on a particular state policy or legislative effort and sort of match it up with some of the issues we're talking about in class. And so for that, one of the great resources that um, I can point students to is the National Academy for State Health Policy, or NASHP. Uh, they have a great website with like maps that track different state legislative activities and health policy on all different range of issues. Full disclosure, I have consulted for NASHP. That's not why I'm shilling for their website. I just think they do great work. But the website does take uh, take a lot of these issues and, and tracks them at the local and state level to see what health legislation is happening in these areas. So for example, when we're thinking about healthcare costs, there are many state initiatives that students could investigate that I'm following and find very interesting. Um, I've been on the show before talking about surprise medical billing. Um, It's all over the news. It's one of the biggest issues Americans complain about, which is that their out-of-pocket costs are rising. And surprise medical bills are really the worst version of this because these are unanticipated and involuntary out-of-network medical bills. And so every year we're seeing more and more states consider legislation um, and some occasionally pass legislation to address surprise medical bills. So in the past, we've seen you know New York sort of headed up the charge and then Connecticut followed, uh, Texas, Florida, California passed a bill last year. And then this past session, um, Arizona became the latest state to pass a surprise billing law. And they're all a little bit different. And so it's really kind of interesting to compare and contrast them or to follow the bills that are presented in the legislature of your own state. So here in Georgia, we have um, proposed surprise billing legislation that hasn't passed. Um, but it is a very, you know, hot button topic. It's one that sort of makes it very personal to students who um, may be trying to think about their own health care costs or those of their family members. Um, and so it's it's an issue that, you know, I think they can kind of wrap their heads around and get sort of worked up about and then follow the legislation accordingly. Another ripped from the headlines issue is drug pricing. Um, so this is, you know, you just had a, a great episode with Amit Sarpatori and Aaron Kesselheim, where you really discussed these issues at sort of a really uh, high level or uh, actually a deep level. But states have really done a lot to consider legislation and then even pass legislation to deal with this issue of high and rising drug prices in one way or another. Um, So New York just passed a law to allow its Medicaid program to use value-based pricing for certain high-cost drugs. Uh, Maryland passed a law allowing its uh, the state attorney general to investigate and prosecute price gouging by generic drug makers. Um, And so there are a lot of these efforts that are happening at the state level where state legislatures are really sort of thinking of novel and different ways. These are not just cookie cutter legislative efforts. They're they're different ways to get at different aspects of the drug pricing problem. 
And there's just a raft of proposed legislation on, say, research cost transparency, on transparency for pharmaceutical benefit managers, PBMs, uh, regulations for PBMs. And there's even, a, a you know, Utah's considering a drug importation law. And so this is a really, again, exciting issue that is, um, it's a good way to kind of understand how there are so many different complex drivers of healthcare prices, uh, drug prices in particular, and what states can do within their sort of limited jurisdiction to help their own, you know, Medicaid programs or their own state uh, payers deal with rising drug costs and to protect their, you know, protect their state citizens from having to pay, you know, huge out-of-pocket costs for drug prices. Aaron, I always enjoy uh, your presentations on these and and other topics. And I've noticed that uh, recently the last bullet on your last slide will be ERISA with a question mark after it. And I did find it very interesting that in all of the debates with regard to the multiple both House and and, uh, Senate uh, bills over the last few months, that even though many raise the prospect of, as you say, putting more decision-making back into the hands of the states, either directly or through waiver provisions, the question of any kind of reform of ERISA such that self-funded plans wouldn't just be able to uh, avoid such state regulation never seemed to come up. Is that because it's only smart health heads like you that think of these things? Or is that a a gotcha that we're going to experience later if we ever do get legislation like that? I sort of, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure whether it's one of those second order issues that um, doesn't, you know, rise to the level of of consideration that, you know, all the other changes that we were seeing debated in Congress this summer. But I, I totally agree with you. I think that the that this is going to come back and bite us if we have at the same time all of this federal effort to basically devolve all, so much responsibility and ownership and funding to states, but then tie the state's hands uh, when it comes to, you know, managing or applying these new regulations or innovations to their entire healthcare markets. Because as you pointed out, ERISA creates this huge exception for self-funded health plans. And the number of you know employer-based plans that are moving to self-funded as opposed to fully insured coverage is growing. Um, more and more small and medium-sized businesses are also self-funding because it's just, you know, it is a, a cheaper option and they can reinsure for the sort of excess risk that they that they would otherwise, you know, not be able to bear. So I think you're absolutely right. I think that this has to be on the table. At the same time, we're talking about, you know, creating more uh, avenues for state experimentation, state responsibility, whatever you want to call it, there has to be a a serious conversation about how ERISA is, you know, basically putting up this big barrier between states' innovation efforts and their ability to actually reach those goals. And that really does come into play with the sort of second area of state innovation, um, which is the coverage and financing area. So there are several, you know, beyond just sort of costs, there are several states that are really fundamentally reconsidering considering how they deal with coverage and financing. Um, So for example, Minnesota has a proposed plan and Nevada passed one, but then it was vetoed by Governor Sandoval to have like a Medicaid buy-in, which is like a public option essentially 
for people shopping on the um, ACA exchange. So they would have the option. And so in the proposal in Minnesota, um, you know, individuals shopping on the exchanges would have the ability to buy low cost public coverage, Minnesota care, which is the state's managed managed care plan for Medicaid. So it was, you know, again, similar in structure in in broad strokes to the Nevada plan, which was um, also going to give people in Nevada, particularly since there are a lot of bear counties in Nevada without any uh, insurer in the exchange, the option to buy the Medicaid managed care plan if they if they don't have any other options. This is a public option. And if there are other options, then this public option would compete with the private options um, to hopefully drive costs down and give people more choices. Um, so these are really interesting examples of how states are, are offering uh, a Medicaid-based public option um, in their ACA exchanges, or at least working toward doing that. None has passed it yet. There's another issue, of course, there's, if you've been watching the news, it's California's single payer proposal, um, which is also just at a proposal stage. But the Cal- but California is the latest and biggest state to put forth a framework for establishing a single payer system in their state and a single payer public health plan that would cover everyone in the state and replace all private insurance in California. So advocates tout how it would eliminate concerns about who is in network or out of network. Everyone would be in network. It would reduce people's out of pocket costs, which is a big consumer complaint. Um, and allow the state government to set rates, basically engage in widespread rate setting to, for services to drive down overall health spending and control costs. Of course, critics point to the huge budgetary impact and wonder how California could possibly raise enough revenues to pay for a single-payer program. Um, and of course, that's w- why Vermont's single-payer program in Colorado's also sort of uh, foundered is because it, it's always, you know, when you come up against the budgetary concern, states have a lot more constraints about how they can pay for their pay for their programs. And then there's, and I mentioned Vermont, but Vermont, you know, even though it, you may recall Vermont attempted and failed to implement a single payer model, um, Vermont has not sat idly by after that effort, but has actually been working with CMS to develop a waiver to pursue an all payer model that would combine all of their all payers, including Medicare, Medicaid, and private payers into a single state regulated ACO, accountable care organizations, that would pay hospitals, physicians, and other providers in a sort of large, ACO pay for performance system and use global budgeting to and rate setting to really cap total health spending in the state of Vermont. And so, you know, even though it's not single payer, there's still multiple payers involved in the in the plan. It is moving, you know, again, aggressively and, and sort of decisively in the direction of a lot more state ownership and control over, over rising health care costs. And of course, in all of these types of proposals, whether it's the Medicaid buy-in, the single payer, or all payer models. The uh, the issue is always about this sort of balance between federalism um, and the value of state experimentation and the teeth of ERISA preemption and the reality that in every instance, all of these types of large reforms or even the smaller reforms on surprise billing or drug pricing will run into ERISA preemption. And it's it's an open question how you would actually apply any of these state reforms to um, ERISA plans. And in particular, you know, after the Gobey versus Liberty Mutual case, Case, which we've talked about in the past, where ERISA preemption is basically broadened. We we now see uh, a lot of sort of precedent that's saying all, all manner of state reforms are now in healthcare are subject to ERISA preemption, sort of beyond what we even thought, you know, two years ago. So, you know, a lot of these significant coverage proposals, um, you know, Medicaid buy-in, single-payer, all-payer models, they also require a different type of sort of permission. I mean, that's a waiver from the federal government. Um, 
in order to include, say, Medicare and Medicaid in their single-payer proposal or in their all-payer proposal, they need to go sort of to the federal government and negotiate and work out a waiver from the federal government so states really can't act unilaterally. I mean, in some ways, I guess that's a good thing because then there are sort of checks and balances that states continue to abide by the Medicare and Medicaid requirements. But at the same time, it sort of makes the federal government uh, policy preferences very you know, salient to even states who want to maybe go in a different direction from what the federal government wants. So while Washington, D.C. sucks up all of this air in the health policy coverage, states have been really busy. They're experimenting with their own solutions to these perennial problems um, of coverage, health coverage, and health care costs. And I suppose there is a glass half full way to see that. And that is, you know, this is why healthcare federalism is really as important as ever. And I think, um, you know, that's something, of course, that Nicole Huberfeld's talked about a, a lot and others. And and it's just, it's it's as, as current of an issue as it could possibly be, really, for all the reasons that you stated before with your question. And that is, you know, states are really the engines of innovation here, but they can't do anything without the federal government say so. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. Aaron, I had a, a question for you about uh, state efforts to regulate pharmaceutical pricing and specifically wondered what you thought. So we've been waiting on Congress to do something. There was a, a proposed pilot. CMS had a proposed pilot last year that uh, basically died in November that would have looked at reforming uh, how we pay for Medicare Part B. And so now it seems like even in the after the dust has settled following Martin Shkreli and Daraprim and EpiPen, that it seems like all the action is going to be at the state level. Specifically, it seems like Maryland is taking the lead as as it has so often in health policy. But I wondered what you thought in terms of if, if this is actually a viable regulatory path. So after Maryland's law, uh, which went into effect, of course, without Governor Hogan's signature, uh, now is subject to a lawsuit. Um, do you think that this provide or this will be a successful way finally that we can get a con- uh, some control on pharmaceutical pricing, specifically thinking about how you actually enforce whether or not a pharmaceutical company has engaged in price gouging, how you measure that and then how you penalize it? It remains to be seen how successful any of these experiments are going to be. You know, I mean, I think you mentioned the Maryland law and I think that all of these... Some, some of the state attempts are sort of more sort of at the margins. Some of them are sort of information forcing, right? They're more about transparency. Um, and hopefully the transparency will have some effect on market forces. But as you say, the, you know, Maryland is, is kind of going right out there and saying we're going to have, you know, prosecutorial power for price gouging under certain conditions. Um, and I think you're right. I think that that could we, it remains to be seen whether that is enough of a deterrent or whether the pharmaceutical lobby, which is, you know, quite organized and very powerful, is able to sort of defeat sort of state by state by state reforms from really having the effect that they want. Um, But I think what we'll see is that you're right, I think a lot of the action will probably be at the state level for for quite a while, um, despite President Trump's assertion that, you know, prescription drug pricing is, you know, an issue that he, you know, feels very strongly about. You know, I'm not sure we're going to get anything out of this Congress um, on on that front. And particularly what we mentioned about the, the Medicare Part B 
uh, proposal, you know, sort of went down. So I think that I think you're right. I think we're going to see a lot of these efforts happen at the state level. Some will be successful, some won't. Um, and I think a lot of other states will probably wait and see. And if Maryland is really successful, you'll probably see more co copycats um, and more sort of development of best sort of model laws um, that sort of lead lead the charge. Because I think that you know we can't count on the federal government at, the, at any you know anytime soon to do anything to bring uh, prescription drug pricing down. One final thing I'd like to mention, one case that I'm watching is U.S. versus Aceracare. It's a case that is currently under appeal at the 11th Circuit. Oral arguments were heard in the spring of 2017, and we're waiting an opinion to be released uh, from the court. Why I'm going to focus on this case and why I'm following it so closely is because I think it has the potential to really change the way the False Claims Act applies to providers who are targeted uh, after being alleged to uh, have committed healthcare fraud. So first, a little bit about the case uh, and then why I think it's so important as we await the 11th Circuit decision. So U.S. versus Aceracare was a case brought by the Department of Justice based on the allegations of a couple of relators where the DOJ was seeking $200 million from Aceracare, which is a hospice giant. The allegations were quite damning, uh, if, if true, where the DOJ alleged that Aceracare was in engaged in wrongful certification, i.e. they were encouraging their employees to certify patients for hospice care who were not terminally ill. Uh, and this was done allegedly by a couple of, of specific undertakings. First, they were targeting patients that were near death to try to uh, limit the stay that they would have to pay in hospice and, of course, achieve reimbursement. But they were also allegedly pressuring families who were considering hospice and also their employees based upon the enrollment numbers of their hospice programs. Uh, some of the worst evidence put on at trial from the Department of Justice was some of the information that was shared uh, on the number of individuals who left the hospice programs who were still alive. And so that was an indication, as at least according to the government, that Aceracare was engaged in some kind of wrongful certification. So the trial proceeded. It was filed in the Northern District of Alabama and Many in the healthcare uh, fraud and abuse community were watching the case specifically because the allegation brought by the Department of Justice focused on medical necessity, which is an area that has become uh, of increased use and interest uh, from the Department of Justice in the last couple of decades, specifically that the care that was provided by the physicians or the providers was not medically necessary, and as a result, governmental payment was fraudulent. As I've argued before and, and focused on, on, the allegation that care lacks medical necessity uh, and then using that allegation to prove a fraud claim is, is fraught with, with challenge, specifically because in many cases, the conception of what's medically necessary is often up for debate. And so that was part of the argument from Aceracare in the Northern District of, of Alabama. They argued that these certifications were actually were not uh, void of medical necessity and actually were subject to clinical disagreement. And what was fascinating about the Northern District of Alabama decision in 2016 was that the court agreed. So in 2016, the case was dismissed uh, in the Northern District with the court noting that when it comes to the False Claims Act, a mere difference of opinion between physicians without more is not enough to show falsity for purposes of the False Claims Act. And the court also found that the case
case basically boiled down to conflicting views of physicians about whether the medical records supported certifications for hospice and whether then the the patients should have been eligible for hospice care. Um, so that's why I'm watching it. And that's why I think that it has the potential to be quite an important case in the development of the False Claims Act and as it applies to healthcare fraud, specifically because if targeted providers can raise the argument that a particular service or procedure was merely a difference of opinion, that is the medical necessity of that procedure was merely a result of a difference of clinical opinion and not the result of any falsity for purposes of the FCA, then the DOJ's ability to use medical necessity to go after providers and use the False Claims Act is greatly curtailed. So we expect the 11th Circuit to be issuing an opinion any week now, and I will continue to watch that as the fall semester progresses. This is Jessica Roberts. I am a George R. Butler Research Professor at the University of Houston Law Center, where I direct our Health Law and Policy Institute. And my topic in terms of what to look out for is who owns your DNA. After more v regents of the University of California over 25 years ago, I think most of us thought that this issue of whether a person has property rights in her own body was settled. But my research has shown that as tissue and data become increasingly commercialized, it's clear that ownership rights are far from settled. So I am a Greenwald faculty scholar in bioethics, and my current project looks at studying genetic ownership rights. I actually have a forthcoming paper in the Notre Dame Law Review. And what I look at in this paper is the idea of genetic ownership. What are the rights we actually have in our bodies? And it's based on a movement in real property scholarship away from thinking in terms of law and economics and thinking in terms of plural values. So surprisingly enough, in the context of bioethics, people are thinking about welfareism, rational actors, and cost-benefit analysis. And I want to urge bioethicists to think in terms of plural values, community, and distributive justice. Now, even though we tend to think that there aren't property interests in DNA, that isn't reality. So people have property-like rights in their genetic information more than they might think in terms of the right to exclude through informed consent, the right to access through the HIPAA and CLIA regs, and the right to commercialize through contract. And it's a little-known fact that five states actually have state statutes that give people property rights in their DNA. And so the thing I would encourage listeners to watch for is a recent case dealing with one of these idiosyncratic state statutes. The name of this case is Cole versus Gene by Gene. And actually, this case has some hometown roots for me because Gene by Gene is better known as Family Tree DNA. And they're actually a Houston-based direct-to-consumer genetic testing company. So I've been to their lab. And the challenge in this case is in 2013, Michael Cole bought one of these direct-to-consumer genetic testing kits online. He swabbed his cheek. He sent in his sample for testing. And he got an optional release form to share his name and email with his genetic matches. And he agreed to get sent a link with his results that he could then use to do research on his genetic ancestry. As part of his deal with Family Tree DNA, he had the option of joining these things that they called projects that were administered by these third-party volunteers on independent websites. And to give you an idea of what these projects are like, one administrator operates over 1,600 of these things. And so what ended up happening, which Cole didn't know, is that when a customer joined 
a project, their genetic data could end up on a public website. So Cole signed up for nine projects. He didn't realize that the administrators had separate websites or that his results could end up being disclosed. So when he started getting spam and he did a quick web search of his own email address, he found that all of his results were available on the web and that his genetic information had been publicly disclosed. So he was not too happy about this. So he sued on behalf of himself and a proposed class of other Alaskans, because this was a case from Alaska, who used Family Tree DNA and joined Project. And the lawsuit came under the Alaska Privacy Act. And this is an interesting statute. It's one of these genetic property laws that I mentioned. Uh, and it says that a person, not only can you not collect their DNA sample without consent, but also the sample and the result are the exclusive property of the person who's being analyzed. So when he sued, what Cole wanted was class certification, a declaration that gene by gene was violating this Alaska Privacy Act. And then he wanted actual and statutory damages and an injunction to stop gene by gene from future disclosures. And so the recent developments on June 30th, the district court for the District of Alaska actually denied gene by gene's motion to dismiss, finding that Cole did have standing to bring his claim. And the thing that I think is interesting about this is the court rejected the idea that disseminating genetic test results without consent might not have a meaningful harm. So the court said, okay, maybe there's not a tangible or economic harm, but there's enough of a harm to have Article 3 standing for an injury in fact. And this is an interesting blend of traditional privacy torts that we're used to seeing in terms of these cases and property tort. Because when the court was analyzing the injury in fact question, they looked at the existing laws and said, hey, both federal and Alaska courts recognize torts that are related to this particular statute, both invasion of privacy, but also conversion of property, which got rejected in more. And then the court said that there are multiple things that tip in favor of granting relief, particularly the fact that Alaska's Privacy Act includes a private right of action. Uh, and the statute acknowledges this substantive right. So this case makes me happy because the court's moving away from a purely economic understanding of ownership interests and genetic data and considering other important non-economic values like privacy and autonomy. Um, and then also on July 28th, so more recently, the court denied Jean by Jean's motion for a summary judgment and said, that this law, the Alaska Privacy Act, is not unconstitutionally vague. But it's not all good news for these plaintiffs because on that same day, the court decided not to certify a class because all of these claims, they said, are different. So people signed different releases and joined different projects. So it didn't make sense to treat this as a class action. So keep an eye on this case to see if courts will start to adopt a more progressive approach to understanding our rights in DNA. We discussed Cole a little bit in a lightning round a few weeks ago. And one of the questions that came up then was, I think uh, Alaska was given the right to intervene. Yes. Because of uh, a potential constitutional challenge. What possible constitutional challenge would there be against a statute like this, Jessica? Well, so what Gene by Gene was alleging in terms of their response to this lawsuit was that this statute is unconstitutionally vague, that it doesn't actually give these companies enough notice about which actions are lawful and which actions are not. And that was something that the district court ended up rejecting. And it's true that these are some pretty broad strokes 
strokes protection. So if you look, there's really two relevant parts to the act that are getting challenged uh, that Cole is using. The first part says that a person may not collect a DNA sample from a person, perform a DNA analysis on a sample, retain a DNA sample, or the results of a sample for analysis or disclose them unless you've gotten written and informed consent. So we're used to these kinds of protections. But then the second part of the protection says that a DNA sample and the results are the exclusive property right of the person sampled or analyzed. And so the idea behind the constitutional challenge was that this is not enough for the company to go on in terms of what it can and can't do. And the court didn't buy that and said, you know what, there was adequate notice here that passing along information without people's consent was going to be a violation of this particular law. And then furthermore, you know, you guys should know better because we have existing kinds of claims that sound in these same registers. How does your work track or deal with sort of the the parallel question of privacy and property that that has been discussed and which generally has been pushed back very strongly by researchers, uh, including very responsible researchers? What kind of uh, barriers might a genetic property kind of rule lead to in, you know, the next generation of personalized medicine, um, precision medicine, and so on? Sure, those are fantastic questions. So in terms of this idea of a property privacy dichotomy, one of the things that led me to go outside of the traditional bioethics research that really differentiates between privacy interests and ownership rights and look at real property scholarship was this idea that property as an institution and as a legal form can actually promote important values like privacy. And so when you're looking at protections that we get for privacy, you know, say in terms of, you know, informed consent and, you know, you can't disclose someone's genetic information without asking them, that actually works a lot like a right to exclude. And so I think that property and privacy have more in common than folks typically realize. And in terms of the research side, you know, going back to the law and economics frame, if you look at more, the California Supreme Court in that case really adopts this law and economics approach and says, you know, the things that we're concerned about is that if we give folks too many interests in their tissue or perhaps in their data, that we're going to end up chilling research and that this was something that is a, impose a huge cost. So the potential benefit of acknowledging a conversion claim, well, that is not nearly great enough as the potential costs to the biotech industry. And that I would say is a that's a predominantly law and economics kind of a frame. And it doesn't take into account there are these other competing values, you know, beyond the potential economic concerns like privacy and autonomy. And so I think that my line of research might not be typically uh, or terribly popular for the folks on the research side who would like to have more of those exclusive rights within their own sphere. But I think that as individual people and citizen scientists, builds, we want more rights in our genetic information and in our tissues. And so at some point, people aren't going to want to participate in research if we don't start thinking about these other kinds of values.
Well, several times over the last six months, we thought this year's BTSS would be all about the dismemberment of the ACA. Indeed, remembering the problem with zombies, we still may see another attempt at repeal before reconciliation runs out. Equally, if there is going to be a bipartisan attempt to stabilize the insurance markets, the Democrats may have to trade something. And at least one report I read suggested that could be some parts of the essential health benefits protection. So, uh, as always, it, it's never over till it's over. But I, I tried to think about the lessons we might be able to learn from the last few months and things that would be useful to pass on to our students. Not necessarily, therefore, just sort of the, the whining at the awful process and the, the sort of the intellectual vacuity of a political process that had zero policy filling, which I think was probably probably the most exhausting and saddening thing for me. I don't know how you felt about that. So yes, the, the, yes. It was the, 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 the intellectual hollowing out that, that was going on. But here's a list of, of things I thought might be worth mentioning in a classroom and see how you react to them. First of all, and it's got relatively little to do with health law, goes to the reconciliation process. And looking back, I think reconciliation is such a tempting process. That lower vote count that you need here you are controlling all branches and having reconciliation available. That can really turn a chap's head. And I think it really turns Speaker Ryan's. Rather than focusing on the Affordable Care Act, he reached for a once-in-a-generation chance to reform entitlements. He targeted Medicaid under the guise of getting rid of the worst parts of Obamacare. And I think what may have sounded like a great idea turned out to be a, a temptation that was that one step too far and ended up being the real reason the reform effort failed, at least the reform effort in the first uh, three quarters of 2017. I think that's right, Nick. And I think that, you know, it's so interesting to think about first the pathologies of the reconciliation process with respect to the timing of parliamentary rulings uh, about what's germane, what's not, or I guess germaneness isn't the, isn't the term, but whatever, what is satisfies the uh, Byrd Amendment and what does not, thinking back to our conversation with uh, Nathan Cortez. And I, I think some very important aspects of the Senate bill and skinny repeal even and some other uh, issues just were put off until the very last moment. And I guess actually it's it's doubly bad, right? Because it's that we have parliamentary rulings happening at the very last second. But then also that that led to a feeling of entitlement to throw out the skinny repeal with almost no warning uh, to the public or to others about that happening. Um, at the very last second. And yeah, it did seem as though things just sort of went from bad to worse. We started with a policy process where it was just a bunch of almost all men, perhaps all men in the room, in the House of Representatives and in the um, in the Senate. And then it just seemed to get even less inclusive as time went on. And I think that was a huge disappointment. You know, and I, and I don't know how this process can be saved at this point. The only silver lining I've seen in recent weeks has been the uh, some statement, somewhat vague from Tom Price, saying that, you know, it's his job to enforce Obamacare and to implement it as the Secretary of Health and Human Services until further notice from the legislature, from Congress. But, you know, I just think it's a sign of how far we've fallen that a statement like that seems like a victory. Yeah. So the second thing that struck me was about labels and symbolism. And if you think back to 2010 and play those seven years out as a sort of mental image, how did Obamacare morph 
from insult to national treasure, from a rallying cry for Republicans to a stick to beat them with. You'd like to think people worked out the ACA was actually valuable, that it had sound policies. But I wonder whether there's just a simpler explanation. And that was that hating Obamacare was a surrogate for disagreeing with or even hating President Obama. The election ends the symbolism, and for the first time, people actually have to confront the Affordable Care Act as a thing, as opposed to a symbol. I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, when I uh, consider the political science, like um, Murray Edelman's uh, symbolic uses of politics, uh, it's very clear that a lot of what drives politics, perhaps the primary drivers, are not material interests, but symbolic identifications. The other thing that I think would be incredibly useful for students of health law and policy to consult uh, is a book by Gabriel Lenz called Follow the Leader. The idea of this book is that essentially citizens, rather than formulating clear policy goals and then looking for the candidate who will advance them, uh, that's not the direction of causation, that in fact what usually happens is that people attach charismatically or to a charismatic leader uh, and then take cues from that leader about policy. Uh, We've seen several empirical verifications of that with respect to uh, Donald Trump's leadership on bombing Syria, a complete reversal on Republican stance on that, being against it when it was Obama bombing, being for it when Trump bombed. Um, I could give other policy examples, too, where things flipped on, say, free trade, Republicans favoring it, but then when Trump came out strongly against it, following his lead there. But perhaps uh, the healthcare debate will be one of those examples where the material interests are so great that the clear and present danger, not only to the Medicaid population, not only to the folks who are on the exchanges, but even to lots of employer-sponsored plans. That was something that was getting some buzz during the whole debate, that there was a big menace to employer-sponsored plans and the protections that the ACA had given to member, to people in those plans, that finally, perhaps, material interests managed to uh, outweigh the symbolic identifications that I think have become so critical to U.S. politics. So, yeah, I think that's a very insightful angle on this problem. My final question or observation goes to how we move forward if we do assume that the Affordable Care Act survives the next few months until reconciliation runs out, survives the next three and a half years unless the country's luck runs out. Because at some point, we're going to have to face up to reforming the Affordable Care Act in meaningful ways. There's a story that some of Obama's advisors back in 2009-10 really did want an affordable health care act, but that others in the administration uh, wanted to use health care spending to help dig us out of the Great Recession. The then president appeared to opt for the latter, and it worked. But in the process, of course, we've added even more cost to what many say, Frank, is an already ridiculously costly healthcare system. Now we have an even worse baseline of costs as we look at how to deal with drug prices, the sort of the revenue gorging by healthcare systems, all the intermediary rent seekers that the healthcare system seems to attract. And although socially maybe a, a great thing, we have these vast numbers of poor or poorer educated persons relying on healthcare for their post-industrialization jobs. If the ACA does survive the next three and a half years, it's difficult to imagine that we won't take the next logical step towards some kind of greater universality. The, the 
gaps that are left are just too obvious and cause too much friction between members or groups in our society. The folks, you know, who who don't qualify for Medicaid or in a state that doesn't have Medicaid expansion. And we're going to have to fill some of those holes in. But that, that hole filling itself is going to be expensive. It's very hard seeing the next step to exactly what may appear in ACA part two at some point in the next three, four, five years. So I think that's a very insightful point, Nick. And I think that the problem becomes for the future of health policy, a massive divide between what I think a majority of the country wants and what our political system is now capable of delivering. And so, for example, at least in among the those who were against the repeal um, over the past several months, there's a group like Andy Slavitt, led by Andy Slavitt and others, um, and Slavitt's part of the Bipartisan Policy Center, that wants to work with Republicans to weaken a lot of aspects of the Affordable Care Act to, for example, put out um, copper plans. That's something that Tim Kaine has wanted. Um, I don't know if Slavitt wants that, but I do have a sense that you know there's, he's going to have to give something, as as you mentioned in your uh, in your analysis. There's another group, though, uh, among the Democrats, particularly at the state level, as we've talked about in California, Nevada, that wants to see full universality. And perhaps there can be some peace brokered via expansive waivers that let, say, Texas, a lot of the South, go in the direction of a healthcare system that looks more like, say, that prevailing in uh, Mexico um, or uh, in other less developed countries. And that enables, say, the six states with complete uh, democratic control uh, of the governor in both houses of the legislature to go in the universalistic direction. But I don't know if that's necessarily stable. I think that ultimately, you know, you've got a lot of people that found the uh, AHCA, Plan for Repeal, repugnant. That was, at least, I think, only about 12 or 17% of people in the U.S. approved of that plan. And you've got probably a large majority that would push us in the direction of European countries. But the problem for that persistent, durable, more universalistic majority is that we've got a political system where you layer partisan gerrymandering that will likely be existing well into the 2020s, if not the 2030s, and a Senate where people in the states having um, less than 15% of the U.S. population have more than 40 seats in the Senate and can effectively veto anything. And then really what the 85% of the rest of the country wants doesn't matter. Uh, so that puts us, I think, in a, uh, a heap of trouble and it leads to a very volatile situation going forward. A heap of trouble, but at least we have the great privilege of working through that trouble with our wonderful health law students. Yes, yes. And I, I think the rising generation has a lot to offer and a lot to say. And that was the week in health law. Massive thanks to the Twill All-Stars, Nick Bagley, Micah Berman, Aaron Fusey-Brown, Zach Buck, Glenn Cohen, Nicole Huberfeld, and Jessica Roberts. We post our show notes at twill.com. Uh, I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank? I am at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting and extremely healthy and successful semester. Thank you.